God, I loved it. I'll send you a copy. Bam! Bitch went down. And welcome back to Horror Queers, Horror Films, Gay Stuff. I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. One of these days I'm going to nail that intro. I'm going to nail it like nobody's business. I think I'll just do it next week and we'll just see how it goes. <sighs> You're so boring. <laughs> so, Joe, mm-hmm. what are we talking about tonight? Or today? Or w- whenever the listeners are listening to this, tonight or today? <laughs> or 5 a.m. as some of our most dedicated patrons have been listening. I was very impressed by that. And honestly, even if that person was our only listener, I would keep doing this podcast just to give them content. I was real touched by that. Yeah. Good times. We've got lots of amazing fans. It's always so fantastic when they reach out to us and tell us about their listening experience or how they're engaging with the show. But it was very humbling to hear that somebody's like, I got up at 5 a.m. to listen to the new episode. It's like, that's crazy. I know. Awesome. And keep it up. So we are talking about Carrie 2 or no, wait, the wait, Rage Carrie 2. I was like, <laughs> the Rage Carrie 2, which there were other names for it. And they, they actually escaped my mind at this point. But it, there were like three different names to this movie before they settled on the Rage, which I guess MGM slash United Artists thought that the Rage would suffice for some reason. Yeah, so the other titles are The Curse and Carrie 2, Say You're Sorry. Which I think is terrible. Wait, no. Say You're Sorry is obviously the best one out of all of these three. No one would go to see a movie called Carrie 2, Say You're Sorry. Well, no one went to go see The Rage Carrie 2, so clearly it doesn't matter. (laughs) Uh, No, but it's very much like Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2. So Carrie 2, Say You're Sorry. It's very... um, it's very funny and it's very campy, which again, mainstream audiences don't get, but I get it. And that's all that really matters. Cat Shea, please reach out to me. I liked your movie, which, spoiler alert, I had never seen this before. I actually. Oh, really? Well, no. So I had seen, it used to air on USA a lot, I think. And so I had seen the party scene multiple times. Uh, okay. Edited for TV. I, I always seemed to catch it when it was like the party was starting. So that's the only part of the movie I'd seen. And I remember thinking, oh, it's like, you know, Carrie Light, which is exactly what this movie is. But mm-hmm. on a rewatch, I mean, what well, partial rewatch, I guess. It's not a great movie by any means. It's I mean, it is kind of a generic movie. But honestly, if you're if you're going for 90s horror, this movie will quench your thirst. It's got really good kill scenes, and it's got a bunch of actors that you're going to recognize from the 90s, which is always enticing. And I think it's well-directed, like, considering the background history, which we'll get into in a moment, I Mm -hmm. think the film turned out very well, all things considered. It definitely did, and I did, so I watched the movie over the weekend, and then I watched the commentary last night, and the commentary, so, uh, listeners, Scream Factory did release a Blu-ray of this, and it's paired as a double feature with the Carrie 2002 miniseries from NBC, which I actually think is a also fine movie. I don't dislike this movie or the miniseries or the remake at all. I mean, obviously, none of them live up to the Brian De Palma original, but mm-hmm. I don't think any of them are outright bad. I think they all have issues, but they also all have their merits. Which is very frustrating, though, because this film gets a very bad rap. People shit on this movie all the time, and guess what? If that is you, go back and watch this movie, because this film does not deserve to be shit on. I haven't seen the miniseries in a hot minute, uh, but I have seen the remake twice. And without having seen the miniseries recently, I would say 
that the Rage Carry 2 is the best out of all of the, like, post-Carry films. So, I just realized that I had completely mentally suppressed all knowledge and awareness of the remake. Even as you were saying it, I was like, yeah, this one and the miniseries. Even though you were saying the word remake and I was just blanking it out because that's how much I don't want to acknowledge that film. The issue with the remake is Kimberly Pierce, the director who directed Boys Don't Cry. Like, you know, th- that that movie should have been a slam fucking dunk. And they were kept saying how they were going to be closer to the book. And the problem is they didn't. It was basically the exact same movie, except the gym teacher, played by Judy Greer, does survive like she does in the book. and. That's about it. <laughs> like, that's yeah. about the only change that movie makes, except Chris's death. Chris is played by Portia Doubleday in the remake. Her death yeah. is amazing. Because that was always my beef with Brenda Palmer's original, is that Chris and Billy, when they die, they don't, like, they're not really aware of what's happening to them or that Carrie's the one doing it. And call me a douchebag, but I'm like, I want those fuckers to know that Carrie is murdering them. And in the remake, you know, I mean, Billy dies immediately, but Chris, like, she basically has her face shoved through the windshield and she gets to, like, look at Carrie as she slowly dies. And it's great. Yeah, I actually have some similar issues with the appropriate person not suffering or getting a gruesome enough death in this film. Uh, I'm assuming you're talking, uh, I don't even know her name, but Liz Purr from Jawbreaker. <laughs> Yes, that is the one. But, okay, we'll get into it. But she's not really in the movie that much. The guys are clearly the bad guys here. And so we're discussing this movie because this movie doesn't have a lot of queer elements. But I actually, I'm actually glad that we decided to do this movie because I actually want to talk about bullying and maybe also talk about our experiences with bullying and maybe how we relate to this film. Mm -hmm. And it's also the film's 20th anniversary coming out the week that this episode drops. Oh, fuck. Yes, that's sorry. That's also the reason we picked it. It just worked out that it was also about bullying. Yeah, it's a, it's a good double dip. <laughs> so, Carrie 2, uh, sorry, The Rage Carrie 2 uh, was released <laughs> on March 12th, 1999 by MGM and United Artists. It has a runtime of 105 minutes with a budget of $21 million, which is high for late 90s. And for this type of movie, I I was actually quite shocked. And the fact that they did not increase the budget when they had to reshoot the first two weeks of footage they had, which I will get into in a minute. It did open at number two, which was a little surprising to me with $7 million. (laughs) The dark days of box office. (laughs) When a movie can open in number two at $7 million. (laughs) On March 12th. Also, that's spring break. Like, I mean, in America. I don't know if Canada has spring break. Do y'all have spring there? (laughs) Yes, we have spring here. It varies on when it arrives, depending on where you live. But I imagine that's not unlike the US. I mean, Texas, it's like 100 degrees all the time. So yeah, but you guys are weird. So yeah. Anyway, anyway, (laughs) so it went on to grow $17.7 million. Again, against its $21 million budget, so it was a flop. I don't, I didn't find any international numbers, so I don't think it opened overseas. But just for, you know, shits and giggles, the adjusted gross for 2019 money is $31.6 million. Still not great. Not great. Had it, 
had Blumhouse done it, <laughs> oh, it would have been fine. Call back to our Happy Death Day episode. Yeah, but this movie had a budget of $21 million, which, I mean, I didn't look at the inflation for that, but I'm sure it's like almost $40 million. Not shockingly, uh, no one liked this movie when it came out. It had a Rotten Tomatoes score of 21% with an average of 3.9 out of 10. And I just want to say... Fuck all y'all. Now, bear in mind that this is about three years, give or take, after Scream. And this is coming in near the tail end of the second cycle of slasher booms, even though this is not a slasher film, really. I think it was unfairly criticized because it's coming near the tail end of that wave. So it's interesting. I just wrote a piece about the 20th anniversary of Jawbreaker, and that film has a terrible audience and critic score as well. So I think people were just tired of teen films where teenagers are being killed i think so but it's even interesting because i mean i well, i haven't rewatched it yet but i have the new blu-ray of valentine and that was 2001 and so talking about post-scream slashers like this movie is a lot better than valentine <laughs> oh my god yes <laughs> so yeah um critics hated this uh metacritic score of 42 out of 10 the audience score on rotten tomatoes though was 33 percent with an average score of 5.2 out of 10 so i guess audiences were a little kinder to it but it wasn't much so that being said, when I posted that I was watching this movie, a lot of people commented on Facebook and Twitter saying that they liked it. So it's found an audience. It just, you know, wasn't in 1999. Yeah. And unfortunately, the themes of this film are still very much prescient. Well, that's, yes. This movie, and I feel like I've been using the phrase more relevant today than it was when it came out. I feel like I've been using that phrase a lot. But this movie is way more relevant today than it was when it came out. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like a stretch. I remember seeing this in the theaters back in 1999, and I kind of felt like, oh, man, like, guys are douchebags, but they're not that bad. And I'm kind of swinging my arms like a howdy-doody kind of thing. This film feels like it could be taking place right now, like 100%. I got to say, though, so I started watching this, and 15 minutes in, I was like, these are the most despicable teenagers i have ever seen in a movie in my entire life and i'm only 15 minutes into this movie yeah they're a bunch of shit heels it's for sure terrible to the point where honestly even though the the grand finale is a great you know revenge fest none of them sans zachary ty Bryan, got a death worthy enough of their bullshit yeah they are truly despicable people and it's hard to have to spend so much time with them. But luckily, we don't spend a lot of time with them. We do spend a lot of time with Rachel, played by the fabulous Emily Burgle. Ooh, mm. fuck. It's going to be another Jessica Rothroth situation. Do you say Burgle or Burl? Oh, shit. I hadn't even thought about it. I think I've always said Burgle. I, I have, too. So... Let's go with that. Listeners, we're going to say Burgle. If it's otherwise, don't correct us. Actually, you can tell us, but don't, like, you know, we're not claiming that that's the right way to say it. So, yeah, directed by Kat Shea, who at the time her most well-known work was Poison Ivy, the Drew Barrymore film from 1992, which I've never seen. Never seen it either. Oh, my God. We should totally do it. One yeah, I mean, yeah, it, I think it totally fits the bill. But she didn't do anything, really, between this and that. And then, honestly, since Carrie, too, she hasn't done much. But she does have the upcoming Nancy Drew in the Hidden Staircase. Oh, is that a TV series or a movie? It's a movie, and it looks really bad, but oh. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? I actually, it might be out by the time this episode drops, so um, we'll, we'll see. This is so frustrating. So we are now in week three of female directors who have basically directed good to great 
films who have then gone on to do absolutely nothing and what the fuck yeah it's really upsetting and honestly because that was in the commentary Cache seems like a really very nice person. She, I, I get a hippie vibe from her, which isn't a diss or anything, but she's very carefree. She seems very, but she cares about the art and she actually speaks very highly of this film. And I, it kind of made me like it more. Like I, I gave this movie a three out of five and honestly, I might give it a three and a half. Yeah, I'm firmly somewhere between the two. I think I lean towards the three and a half. Cause it, it has aged better than I remember. Its intentions are there. Like it, and, as we've discussed before, good intentions are typically a way to my heart and to make me cut a movie some slack. And this movie doesn't feel gratuitous, it doesn't feel exploitative, it feels very pure, but there are still like those, you can't escape the original, which this film, I think, tries to do sometimes, but then also leans really heavily into the original. Did you know that this was originally a it was unrelated to Carrie, and then they noticed that it was evoking so much of it that they were like, maybe we should just make it a sequel. No, I did not know that, and I don't really know how that didn't come across in my research. Uh, the film was written by Raphael Moreau, whose only other credit that I found was Hackers, the Angelina Jolie film, which I've also never seen. <gasps> oh my god, I love Hackers. Love okay. it, love it, love it. I mean, I, I can tell you what the VHS cover looks like, because I used to see it all the time, but I don't, I've never actually seen it. That's when I was... Still thinking I was maybe bi, and I was in love with Angelina Jolie, which is hilarious because she's kind of androgynous in that movie. Uh, cinematographer is Donald M. Morgan, and normally I wouldn't bring up a cinematographer in this pre-show countdown, but he's on the commentary with Kat Shea, and his credits, he actually worked with John Carpenter a lot. He worked on Christine, and he worked on Starman. Starman is actually one of John Carpenter's best films, and everyone should see it, even though it's not a horror movie. Haven't seen it. Think of it as E.T., but instead of like a gross alien, it's a man who's Jeff Bridges, and he has a romance with Karen Allen from Indiana Jones. And I like both of those people. And that's back when Jeff Bridges is still hot, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you could argue that he's still attractive, but I mean, you know. To each their own. Right. Okay. So, yes, as, as we've mentioned, uh, Emily Burgle is in the lead role as Rachel, and people may know her from Gilmore Girls or crazy characters on Desperate Housewives and Shameless, which she's great. She's been a character actress for a long time. She, I don't think she's ever really had a lead role outside of this movie that's well known, but she's good in this, and she's great in everything else I've seen her in. And then as Rachel's partner in crime, you have Jason London, who... I mean, I know him from Days and Confused. Do you know him from anything else? I mean, I know that he has a twin named Jeremy. Okay. Uh, then <laughs> you have Amy Irving, the only cast member of the first film returning as Sue Snell, because she was the only survivor of the first movie, mm -hmm. playing guidance counselor Sue Snell. And I gotta say, if I have one gripe about this movie, it is that they fucking waste Amy Irving in this movie. And I hate what happens to her character. Spoiler alert, she gets a fire poker through the eye. Yes. And I remember when I saw this movie in the theaters, I walked out and that was actually one of the things that made me dislike the movie initially because I was so angry. I mean, I get it. She has the gym teacher death from the first movie because you don't want yeah. that gym teacher to die. But because she spends so much of the movie trying to like relate with and, you know, befriend Rachel, she doesn't get to do that. And then it's given to the mother who we have not seen except for the mm -hmm. first scene of this movie, it's it's a big problem for me. And that's my biggest grade. Yeah, it's a bit of a misguided uh, decision on the part of the screenplay. And there's a couple of those where they just 
it's like, no, this was actually the wrong decision to make and you should have done it the other way. I would have preferred that the mom got the fireplace poker. I don't even need that mother to see Rachel. I don't need Rachel to see the mother because what they end up doing with them is so stupid. Like the mother sees her and is like, you're the devil. And then she just runs away and we never see the mom again. We don't even know what happened to her. It's bad. So uh, then, of course, your two most notable bullies um, in terms of actors are Rachel Blanchard, who I love in Snakes on a Plane and Without a Paddle. And uh, then, of course, Zachary Ty Bryan as a uh, serial rapist uh, who... Jesus. I mean, that's basically... I mean, he's not a rapist in this movie, but, like, he's a douchebag. And he's from Home Improvement. And then Mina Suvari is Rachel's friend who kills herself in the beginning of the movie. And mm-hmm. people may know her from American Pie and Sugar and Spice. It is interesting, though. Be- so, okay, so there's a- the main, main villain is someone who's not well known. Uh, so the character's name is Mark and the actor's name is Dylan Bruno. P.S. Hasn't aged super well. But in this movie, he looks like Kevin Dillon. Oh, my God. Thank you. Yes, because I was I spent the entire movie being like, no, no, that, I, no. I thought it? it was Kevin Dillon the whole time. Like the, in, until the credits rolled or I, I went to IMDb. Yeah, it like, looks just like Kevin Dillon. And I think that's why he's not famous now because Kevin Dillon took all his roles. <laughs> he was like, I'd walk into a room and there would be Kevin fucking Dillon taking <laughs> my roles. I was meant to be on Entourage. <laughs> yes, exactly. Except no one should be on Entourage because that show is a piece of shit. I have seen two episodes and I hated it. It was so obnoxious. It's basically the rich version of this where they don't die. Yeah, that sounds awful. So who's our other villain that you're talking about? Oh, so Mark is the main guy. That's the guy we were just talking about. And then I would argue that Tracy is the other villain. So she's the head mean girl, but Monica ends up supplanting her in the climax. Which doesn't make a lot of sense. No, that's my other narrative complaint. Mark and Tracy don't interact, I don't think, at all in this entire movie. I don't think they have one line of dialogue together. No, I think they have, like, lunch scenes together, but they don't really No, Tracy is at lunch staring at Rachel every time that she's at lunch. And that's the other issue, too, is that's all you really get from Tracy. All you see is her staring at Rachel at lunch, and then she tries to seduce Jesse in the third act. Mm -hmm. Like, there's not a lot there, because that's what, I mean, obviously... Brian De Palma's film does a lot better with everything it has in its display, but it really succeeds at making Chris like a notable, disgusting, awful person slash villain. Although counterpoint, Chris has actually been reclaimed by some feminists by saying that she's mistreated by the John Travolta character and that she's kind of repositioned her outrage and her frustrations to fixate on Carrie. So it's like women on women violence, but it's actually instigated by men. I would agree with that. But she's still a cunt. Oh, yeah. She's a terrible (laughs) person. Yeah, yeah. No matter what causes her to be a bitch towards Carrie, she's still a bitch. And, you know, whatever. But I totally agree. Whereas Tracy, you don't get that. And so even though, yes, it sucks that her death is literally a piece of flaming wood falling on her. It's it's really bad. Um, But I'll, I'll get into that actually when we talk about the final scene later. So, yeah, that's the background of Carrie 2, Joe. Mm-hmm. What is Carrie 2 about? So I didn't have time to make a patented Joe-approved synthesized version. So I was like, I'm just going to hop onto Google and find some quick thing. So I'm going to read you the hilarious one that I found first. So this is what comes up when I put in the Rage Carrie 2 plot into Google. Okay. When her closest friend commits suicide after being manipulated by the popular crowd, quiet and bookish Rachel Lang decides to get back at the guilty parties. 
No, she does not. Although Rachel falls for sensitive <laughs> football player Jesse Ryan, she remains determined to punish his callous friends. No, she does not. When <laughs> Rachel discovers that she has superhuman abilities, no, she does not. It ups the stakes for her revenge. No, it does not. Echoing a supernatural incident that occurred decades before. Okay, yes, that part's true. Okay, before I'm you, like, who wrote this? Before you give me the second <laughs> summary, um, how much better would that have been, though, if she knew what she was doing and was actively planning revenge for this movie? I mean, I suppose you could infer that she is trying to get back at the guilty parties by getting them arrested, but not really. No, 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 no. But, but hey, if, because that's the thing, with... The first Carrie, Carrie knew she had powers, you know, like she, and she practiced them, like, I mean, like, very briefly, but she did. This one, Rachel doesn't seem to understand when she does things with her mind. Mm -hmm. And I actually kind of wish now that she did know and she was practicing and she was fucking like, I'm going to kill these fuckers. But I think the movie would just end then. Like, if she was cognizant of what she could actually accomplish, then the, she would just reap her revenge and the film would end, right? Like, I mean, you have to have something that allows her to realize she has that kind of control and then set her loose. Okay, I'll go with it. So what's the actual plot of this movie? <laughs> okay, so this one's a little bit better, but it's still, it's written by random generic IMDb user Anthony Pereira, which I probably just massacred. So I apologize, Anthony, if you ever listen to this. Pereira. Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay. So it says, after the suicide of her only friend, Rachel Lang has never felt more on the outside. The one person who reached out to her, Jesse Ryan, also happens to be part of the popular crowd that lives to torment outsiders like her. However, Rachel has something else that separates her from the rest. Secret, amazing powers to move things with her mind. Sue Snell, the only survivor of Carrie White's rampage 23 years ago, may hold the key to helping Rachel come to terms with her awesome but unwanted powers, but as Rachel slowly learns to trust, a terrible trap is being laid for, laid for her, and making her angry could prove to be deadly. And then she kills everyone at the party. And then she kills everybody at the fucking party! <laughs> this movie starts, and it's basically, like, Rachel's a little girl, and her mom's nuts, and her mom paints her face <laughs> yes her mom is a schizophrenic and she's having a psychotic meltdown during the middle of a storm that apparently roger ebert doesn't understand <laughs> <laughs> oh 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 okay okay so wait before we get into the plot the backstory of this movie uh the commentary which by the way it's cat shea director and cinematographer donald m morgan moderated by none other than david Dakota. What? <laughs> that was what I kept from you. <laughs> I love it. So, yes, David Dakota, the listeners, if you don't know, he does these really, I've only seen one of his movies because Joe made me watch it, but he does oh, these fuck. really, you loved it. It, it was, no, it loved was, it was it. great. He does these really trashy, softcore, gay movies. And like the one we watched was The Brotherhood for one of our articles last March. That we paired with The Covenant, this awful Rennie Harlan witch movie with a bunch of naked boys. That was a good month, people. It was a very good month. I mean, there were lots of boulders, lots of speedos, lots of butts. Anyway, so he does other movies like that, I guess. I mean, you, you know more about him than I do. Yeah, he owns an entire empire of direct-to-video B slash E videos that are kind of like this, called Rapid Hearts. And he made... God, I think he's got over a hundred directorial credits to his name, but he actually now mostly directs Hallmark and Ion and Lifetime Christmas movies. And he's amazing. No, I mean, I, honestly, he was very 
like cool in this interview. He was very the, the, the interview. The commentary was very technical. Um, it what didn't deal with a lot of the reception. It dealt with a lot of like Cat Shay's like creative decisions with this film, which sounds fascinating to be honest. I love the technical stuff like that. It's great. So basically, the reason that this movie could be perceived as a shit show. So this movie was being filmed for two weeks, and the studio MGM fired the director and the cinematographer, and they were like, "Fuck." We need a new director. Otherwise, we have to cancel this movie. I'm assuming this is probably early 1998, maybe spring 98. Well, and bear in mind that this is actually two years after they had originally started to think about filming this because it was delayed two years. Yes, which honestly, I wonder if it would have been received better had it come out two years prior. I think so, for sure. So anyway, so they reach out to Kat Shea somehow. So Kat Shea comes from the Roger Corman world, and she's like best friends. Oh. That's her David to Dakota connection because he got his start under Roger Corman as well. Well, so anyway, so she got Poison Ivy and she says was critically acclaimed, but I did some research and um, it's not. So I don't know what I mean, she's it's critically acclaimed <laughs> trash. Yeah. But I think like for the right reasons, like people love it for that as a camp classic. Right. Uh, but she basically never got any work. And she says, like, it's not because I wasn't trying. I couldn't get a job after Poison Ivy. And it wasn't because of that movie. It was because no one wanted to hire a woman director. Yeah, I, I was literally about to say that. I'm like, uh, it's because Hollywood's sexist as fuck. Yeah. And so they gave her this. But it's interesting because they get, like it's it was like, oh, fuck, we're in an emergency. Let's take the person we can get. Oh, my God. It's a woman. Yeah. So basically, though, so here's the thing. So she's very diplomatic in the commentary, but she says that they showed her the footage and she was like, yeah, it was interesting. He shot it like a drama and they weren't going for that. They wanted it to be shot more like a horror movie. His name was Robert Mandel. Okay, cool. Awesome. And so at the time, they hadn't hired a new cinematographer. They were just trying to get the director first. And so she saw the footage and she was like, okay, well, yeah, I mean, I'll do this. It's a job. Like, it's great. Whatever. And she took the job. And she hired the cinematographer. But here's the thing. The studio said, okay, cool. You have to use this two weeks worth of footage we had and then just keep shooting the movie. And so she's like, wait, but so <laughs> you want me to copy what he's doing? When Please you incorporate this shit that <laughs> got another person fired, but we're also not going to give you any extra money to shoot new stuff. Thanks. Bye. Love you. Yes. And so her and the cinematographer, Donald J. Morgan, were vehemently opposed to this. So they went to the studio and they were like, look. We have to start from scratch. We have to reshoot these two weeks of footage. And the studio basically goes, okay, fine. You can do that, but we're not giving you, A, any extra time. God. And we're not giving you any extra money. So, basically... Like two weeks of filming. Mm -hmm. I, I can't imagine... I don't know how long this movie took to film, but I can't imagine that it was... I want to say it was a. it was either a 42-day or a 52-day shoot. Yeah, I was going to say, probably like somewhere in the 40s, which is yeah. probably reasonable for an FX heavy, like, there's a lot of people in this film, like, there's a lot of scenes with extras, yeah. and so to lose two fucking weeks off of that, that is crazy. Well, and she brings up how when she came on, like, day one, all the actors were, like, not into her. They were all against her, everyone was in a bad mood, no one was nice to her. Jesus. And... The cinematographer was like, well, you know, you kind of won them over by the end. She's like, oh, I absolutely did. But, like, again, like, you have to understand, they saw me as, like, the suit coming in to fix the troubled production. And right. then asking them to reshoot all this footage that they had already shot. And in terms of losing time, her biggest regret was the party scene at the end. She was like, I, I would... 
if I had to change anything, it would be how I shot a lot of the things in this climax. But as it is, I'm proud of it. Uh, but the funny thing for me, and so basically David Dakota asks her, how is Amy Irving? And she goes, <laughs> and she goes, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, you know, she, um, she was good. She was there. <laughs> <laughs> she well, was physically present. It's because, because, you know, I mean, did you read this? Like, you know, Amy Irving, like, got approval from De Palma to be in this movie. Which I love. I'm like, that's like going to your grandpa who's not involved in your life being like, hey, should I do this? I know. And it's like, bitch, you were married to Steven Spielberg. You, like, you can get off without doing Carrie too. but I guess she wanted the money. I don't know. I mean, it's not for the part. She doesn't say it, but I get the impression there was a, that the main actress or actor who had tension with Kat Shea was Amy Irving. Hmm. And luckily... Because De Palma also had to approve the new director, and he approved Cachet because she was in Scarface. Yes, yes, I remember seeing that bit of trivia. Uh, very brief, like she's like, I think I'm on the cutting room floor, but I did, I did know Brian, and that's how like he approved me because of that. But yeah, she lets on that the her relationship with Irving, at least in the beginning of the shoot, was fraught with tension. Jeez. So anyway. That's the, my biggest takeaway from the commentary. There's a bunch of other shit, too, but that, that was the big one. Uh, I wish more commentaries were, like, fucking juicy. Going into this movie with that knowledge of knowing, you know, they were two weeks behind schedule. No one was happy with Kat Shea because she was, you know, replacing this other guy that they'd already spent two weeks working with. She's behind the gun. She doesn't have extra money and actors who hate her. And she still delivers this, like, this perfectly competent at the lowest bar to actually surprisingly good film yes absolutely and so go into that if you're if you're rewatching this for this podcast which i mean if you've already made it this far i'm assuming you've already watched rewatched it before but go into it with that knowledge and honestly i think it'll make you kind of appreciate this film a lot more for what it is because it's a lot better honestly than some of these nine like late 90s horror films we were getting mm-hmm Oh, yeah. But I did find it interesting that she was saying, oh, the, the old director was shooting it as a drama and they wanted more of a horror film. And they wanted like she's like, oh, like, you know, in a horror film, you can get inside the, the, the protagonist's mind and you can do black and white shots and you can do crazy camera tricks. But in a serious drama, you can't do that. And he was shooting it very much like that. And I'm like, mm. yeah, I don't know that I'd agree with that. But I yeah, mean... <laughs> because honestly, the black and white effects in this movie were some of my least favorite things about it. Yeah. You can shoot the beginning of the movie like a drama because that's kind of what it is. Now, by the beginning of the film, do you mean like that opening sequence with her mom? Or do you mean like the opening sequence where we're establishing the relationship between all the high school kids and her and her best friend and all that? All of it. You can shoot the first two acts like a drama because that's kind of how the first carry was. Yes, I paused because I was like, no, you've no, but it's I, mostly because I'm thinking you've got to have something in the 90s. You've got to have some kind of opening stinger to really like hook people in. So what's the opening stinger of this movie? <laughs> I'm not saying it's successful. I'm just saying, I mean, I do think the shot of little Rachel when the cop randomly pulls her out into the rain to question her and she flips out on him and she like runs back into the house and all the doors are slamming after her as she goes through each of the rooms. I mean, it's not super showy or anything, but I did like this idea that her power is obviously connected to her emotional state. And even as a young child, she's already demonstrating like crazy power that is going to become dangerous and lethal. Yeah. it's. A, I mean, it's a good way to be like, hey... This is your central protagonist. She's got telekinetic abilities. And when she grows up, she's going to be super dangerous. Yes. No, I mean, like, 
Totally. It, hey, here's the, here's the thing that we're, that's working against this movie is if you've seen Carrie, you know where this movie's going. Yes, that is a problem. So does this movie work knowing that a big revenge party scene is coming? I'd say yes, because I think the success of the film is more so in the Rachel Jesse relationship, which is arguably where the first Carrie does a lot of good work, too. It's exposing the inner life of Carrie White and what ends up driving a so-called nice girl to such extreme measures. And I think in this film, Rachel is a very sympathetic character mm-hmm. and you're rooting for her and you're you're almost hoping that she doesn't go down the Carrie White path. Let's just start here. So, you know, her mom goes to Insane Asylum, Arkham Asylum, <laughs> mind you. <laughs> Boo. I've got booze written all over my notes every time they say Arkham. I thought that was so funny, but it wasn't even an homage to Batman. It was an homage to, I want to say, Lovecraft, like which is where Batman got it from. Yeah, which I didn't know until I read that. Yeah. Anyway, so Rachel, her mom goes to the loony bin, and she gets raised with foster parents who are terrible. Yes. My favorite is when she's like, the the mom is like, your mom's getting better. Maybe you'll get to go and like leave the nest soon. And the dad's like, well, where are we going to recover the 300 bucks a month? And you're oh like, oh, that is some really good shorthand to establish that you're a piece of shit. Yeah. I mean, whatever. Like, I can look past that. Like, it's super soapy, like teen movie, whatever. But she does have a trusty sidekick in her dog. This Walter. Walter the Basset Hound. Oh, my God. He's so adorable. He is. And when we get to his big moment, um, I have things to say. So <laughs> uh, anyway, so she's best friends with Mina Suvari. And mm-hmm. Mina Suvari basically is like, oh, I fuck this guy. It's like really good. I some virginity. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I can't tell you who it is yet, though, because it's a secret. But it's a good one. I'll tell you later, like at lunch. AKA, it's a popular person who's going to break my heart. Yes. And cut to her throwing herself off the roof of the school and dying. Oof. And can we just talk about... Okay, so this is when you know that this film is playing it serious and it is not going down the same path that other late 90s teen horror films are going. Because when Minisuvari's face hits that windshield and the camera stays and you just start to see the blood pooling on the windshield, you're like, oh, this film ain't playing. It's a really effective sequence. And the way it's shot, because when she jumps off, it it almost looks like she's crucified in the air. You're like, oh, maybe she's going to flow. Oh, God, no. No, no, no. Totally not. I mean, it's a really affecting scene. And... And that's when we're basically introduced to Sue and Rachel getting together... And she was like, oh, God, I've got to take care of another one of these girls because she's been dealing with all of these girls who have been randomly getting fucked and then dumped. I I had a comment, though. So first of all, and we'll get back to them because we missed the introduction of all the douchebag boys. But when Mina Suvari kills herself, Amy Irving is in a session with a student Mm -hmm. with the door open, which literally happens for the entire movie. Every time she's in a session, the door is open. And then... (laughs) Someone, uh, this guy just walks into the room and he's like, uh, a girl just killed herself in the lot. You better come. And Amy Irving is with this girl who's crying. <laughs> and she's like, I'll be right back. And just leaves. It's, I, I, what? I read multiple reviews of this film that described her as an ineffectual guidance counselor. <laughs> I mean, I would argue Yes. Especially when she takes Rachel to the remains of the old high school gym. (laughs) Hey, this is where your half-sister burned up 73 people. Nudge, nudge. This could be you. And 
Why are they still there? Why are the remains still there? Why didn't they clean up that area and, like, build something else or put a cemetery there? Uh, I think it's a memorial, and maybe every year they release a box of white doves uh, that are then hosed down with a really high-pressure water uh yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you were saying. Okay. So, tell me about these boys. So, these boys are charming, upstanding, moral members of the community. Ugh. They play football. They're going to go to college on scholarship. Their dads are super powerful, white, heterosexual men. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait. Did you mean the boys in the film, or are you talking about the Trump kids? <laughs> <laughs> the boys in the film. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, no. So all of that still applies. And they're basically terrible. And they're keeping a book of points, which I feel like I've seen in another film. But apparently, this is a direct reference to something that happened in 1993. Yes. Which I'm sure you're familiar with called the Spur Posse. Why would I be familiar with that? Because you looked up all the trivia. Oh, okay. I thought you meant like, because I had like a connection to it. I was like, I don't know what the fuck this is. And also because I think you're a sexual offender. Yes. So, no, the plot borrows heavily from a real life 1993 incident in which a group of high school jocks known as the Spur Posse were involved in a sex scandal, which is why this film was trying to be, I mean, like, I think, I want to say 95 even is like when this film was trying to be made. It was probably written in 95, planned to be shot in 96, and then pushed back two years. Yes, that sounds about accurate. So yeah, anyway, these douchebags. And I think I, I think you're right though. I have seen this point system in another film before, and I can't tell you what it is right now, but I've definitely seen it before. So people tweet us what movies have boys having sex with girls for points. And it really sucks though, because Zachary Ty Bryan clearly does like Minu Suvari. Mm-hmm. Well that that's actually one of the things that I love. So even shit heel characters have a bit of interesting nuance to it. So after she kills herself and he's talking to Mark, who is the unabashed asshole of this entire group, even though he's not really the leader per se, but he is the most despicable piece of shit you will ever see. Yes. So Eric is talking about how he kind of liked this girl, but then he heard his friends talking shit about her. So he was like, Oh, I had to get rid of her or like dump her, not get rid of her. He was not involved explicitly in the murder or in the suicide rather <laughs> and we don't even get to see the dumping scene which is kind of a cop-out for me i would have liked to have seen that uh, no you're okay with just cutting to her killing herself i'm kind of okay with it because i felt like at this point the film was still trying to be mysterious as to who the boy was mm -hmm. because then you've got the whole development of the photo that they took together and the police investigation but it is interesting that that eric you know begins by saying oh yeah i kind of liked her but then he bows to peer pressure but then immediately also flips and is like i hope these christian colleges don't find out about the sex and suicide stuff and you're like oh no you're back to shit heel territory speaking of photos though this movie does like because when we do these 90s movies i love talking about the technology because a big plot point of this movie hinges on like rachel's one hour photo job. <laughs> oh my god, it's a drive through <laughs> photo mart, and I died. I loved it. It's so, so good. Much. <laughs> uh, so yeah, anyway, continue about your boys. Okay, so, so that is Eric, and then there is Mark, who is the unabashed ringleader, and he's, he's the most invested, I think, in the point system, and he's, you know, the typical aggro bro who's egging people on and talking about how he's going to get with which girls. And, you know, at one point he actually, he points to some totally random looking girl and he's like, 
Mm. Well, we wouldn't give her a lot of points because she's a fat girl. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> she's like, literally, she looks like a totally normal person. <laughs> no, she I mean, it's like when people say Bridget Jones is fat. I'm like, she's like a normal sized person. Yeah. Like six to eight to ten people. That's regular person. Size, yeah. So, yeah. So there's the two of them. And then there's Monica's boyfriend, who I could not for the life of me remember his name at all. Uh, he's this the, he's the, film. the bigger, muscular, bald guy who yells a lot. Like, that's literally all he does. Yeah. But like, he kind of just looks the same as every like he disappeared into the background a lot. I couldn't remember if he was the same guy who was videotaping everything because it's the late 90s. So, of course, we've got to have a video camera in the mix. Um, I don't know. And I don't don't care. care. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So that guy's in the mix. He's also a total dick, but he's kind of doing everything that everybody else wants him to do. And then there's Jesse, which is our, our teen heartthrob. He starts the film being a sort of reluctant player in all of this. But then after he porks mean girl Tracy in the car in the woods with his frat boy douche boy watching, like the guys are watching from, I think, what, 50 feet away Maybe. at that point? To which I was like, that is some gay ass shit there where you're like watching your buddy have sex with somebody else. Like. And why does Tracy not get upset by that? That was what bothered me the most. She's just like putting her clothes back on and she's like, uh, you guys are assholes. I'm like, no, they're disgusting. How are you not upset by this? She's a very problematic character um, in general, but I don't think the movie really has the depth to like even merit a conversation about it. <laughs> like she's just a super one dimensional bitch with very little screen time. It feels like Tracy and Monica should have been the same character. Ooh, yes. Well, no, because honestly, Monica's death, which... Oh my god, Monica's death is amazing. It is, but I don't know how she dies from... Well, we'll get into it. But it's a more it's a more fitting, painful death, which is great. Yes. But the thing, so Tracy fucks him, or they fuck each other. And <laughs> literally, all she does until the end of the movie is just stare at him in the lunch hour. Like, yeah, she makes she stank eyes, and she's like, why is he talking to that girl? Ugh, she's so ugly. Doesn't he even have the decency to talk to some hot girl? And you're like, that's the best you've got? But my favorite line is fucking Monica going, come on, Trace, you're caviar, and she's cheese whiz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is a jawbreaker line if I've ever heard one. Uh, I did also like how Monica, when she's trying to rub up against Rachel to encourage her to come to the party so that they can humiliate her, she describes Tracy as a Melrose Place super bitch. I was like, ooh, that is a late 90s reference right then and there, people. It is. And did you also catch when they're driving Rachel to the party, the song playing in the car is something called Backstabbing Liar? <laughs> uh, you should go back and listen to that because it's super funny. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah um Je that that was actually an issue i had too is i don't know why jesse was friends with these people no there needed to be a firmer separation like some kind of like we've all been best friends for years i mean there's the insinuation that because he's part of the team and he's grown up with Ugh. these people that he's just accepted their behavior and it's really not until menasuvari's character whose name i can't remember right now lisa lisa thank you okay so it seems like he changes his mind when lisa commits suicide and then he actually notices rachel and at that point on then he starts to drift away oh. but it doesn't Typically in, in movies, you'll get something that's a little bit more cinematically black and white. And I don't mean black and white sequences. Yeah. 
but it'll be something like this was the defining incident that then shifted my perspective away from these jackasses and towards this nice sensitive girl with the cute dog maybe that was then an issue with the reshoots like maybe she cat did reshoot as much as she could maybe there was something or maybe it was just not in the script <laughs> maybe it was just bad script writing who knows i think yeah i think the script has a couple overall i'm actually mostly pleased with the film at a script-based level, which is rare for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I usually have a lot of problems with scripts, but I feel like this one actually does pretty well. But then there are a couple of either, I don't want to say problematic characters, but things, characters or incidents that don't work quite as well. So Tracy is definitely one of them. Sue Snell is one of them. Mm-hmm. The mom is, I mean, Sue and the mom are kind of wrapped together. But That's that, aunt, dude, they could have literally not brought back the mom and just had it be Sue's story. Well, why not make Sue a more prominent figure and have her assume... I mean, they're already trying to make her a surrogate mother. Mm -hmm. So why not just take that further? Like, we don't... It honestly feels like this is the separation between an original film that had appearances similar to Carrie and then them being like, okay, it's now an official Carrie remake... Not remake, sequel. But I mean, Uh, it kind of is, though. This movie kind of is a Carrie remake, though. It it definitely feels like they would have been better served just being like, it it evokes Carrie, as opposed to being like, let's have a scene where Sue talks about how telekinetic powers are passed down through the male line, mm-hmm. and then we can name some random fucking dude and be like, yeah, that was also Carrie White's father. I do applaud the film, though, for not having, like, the obligatory microfish research scene or like whatever google was in 1999 like they they totally skipped that and sue just knew what yeah what the uh, the the dominant gene for telepathy was (laughs) or telekinesis yeah you gotta think she's been sitting on this for 23 fucking years (laughs) it's like she's like oh crying girl in my office again i'm really sorry i'm kind of busy researching telekinesis right now (laughs) well that's what the guy tells her though he's like i feel like you're trying to save a girl that died 20 years ago which it was so weird to me because like 20 years ago but it this was it was this movie came out 21 years after carrie did so it wasn't like i mean it was long but it wasn't like as again thinking back to carrie you know it's 40 years now mm-hmm. um well because unless you were freddie or michael or jason you weren't really getting sequels no not not for a film in the 70s Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So, how does how did Jesse and Rachel cross paths? Oh, okay. So the good news is is that the dog does not die. It's. I mean, I watched this and I I, I like stood up and I was like, <gasps> I was well, so upset. And testament for cat to Cache for creating some genuine tension because a if you're a, a human being you know that people will respond to animals in peril. So the stupid stepfather lets the dog out. The dog is running down the road in the middle of the night. Rachel's chasing after it. And you're like, well, I can see this coming. And this Mm -hmm. is shit. Don't do this to me. And then the dog misses one car and then gets hit by a truck. And you're like, Jesus. Like, 
and Cat Shay shows <laughs> this dog get run oh my over. God. But yes. but it's clearly like a giant stuffed animal of the dog. <laughs> Yes, with a very wacky sound effect that was like, (laughs) that is not a dog. That sounded like a monkey. (laughs) Anyway, somehow the dog lives. But yeah, Jesse finds her and picks her up and takes her and the dog, Walter, to the vet. And the dog's fine. Mm -hmm. Because this town has a 24-hour vet as well as a diner nearby. That, okay. He (laughs) (laughs) He takes her to this diner. And she's covered in blood. And everyone's staring at her. And he goes, oh, don't worry. Everyone's just staring at you because you look like a serial murderer. And it's like, no shit. She's covered in blood. Like, full on covered in blood. She's uh, Carrie White level covered in blood. It's And then they just eat food. And they go on a date. I will say, I was a little frustrated at the fact that she basically gets a boyfriend and forgets about her poor dog. <laughs> I mean, I know the dog is still around. And she's, like, petting him in the one scene <laughs> before she leaves <laughs> to go to the big game. But I was kind of like... Bitch, your dog almost just died. Like, who cares about that D, even if it is a London twin? I was more upset. Not upset. Actually, it's fine, but perplexed by the fact that Jason London is the one that ends up with the dog at the end of the movie. Yeah, but I mean, who's who else is going to take it? I, don't I mean, she's know. pretty I mean, much killed everybody else. Maybe that her, her, Eddie K. Thomas kid from American Pie. Oh, yeah. Th- that's your connection, by the way. Mina Suvari and Eddie K. Thomas are both in this movie. Both of whom are in American Pie, which would have come out, I think, just a few months after this movie. Okay. Also, that is like IMDb level trivia. Like, who cares? No. Who cares that they were in another movie together? <laughs> That's like literally the one movie that if you were to say, what's Mina Suvari from or what's Eddie K. Thomas from? People would say, oh, American Pie. Uh, no, from Mina Suvari, people would say American Beauty. Oh, that's true. Which also came out in 1999. Dude, 1999 Minas, was a good year for Mina Suvar. I bet you she looks at this and she's like, God damn it. Like, mm. That was she's almost a perfect in, year. She's in another American movie as well, amusingly <laughs> enough. She That's was in great. so many fucking American movies. And then she just disappeared off the face of the earth. Mina Suvari was in an Alicia Silverstone TV show last year on uh, TV Land. I think it was TV Land. Maybe it was not. But uh, called yeah. Yeah. American Woman. Oh my God, American <laughs> Woman! <laughs> I'm telling you. It's like, I have an American project, and all of a sudden the phone rings, and it's like, Mina Suvari, and she's like, hi, I have rights to be in your movie. <laughs> it was a really good show, and it got canceled after one season, though. It was really depressing. It looked like fun, but it looked very slow. Yeah, it was a 30-minute, like, sitcom almost. But, like, not a sitcom, though. Like, it was, like, a 30-minute dramedy. Dramedy, set in the 70s. Yeah. yeah, so basically, like, long story short, Rachel and Jesse, they fall in love. Mm-hmm. And you know that it's going to happen because they were reading Romeo and Juliet in the English class. Yes. Which is also part of the trivia on IMDb. That teacher, by the way, that's talking about Romeo and Juliet is really into Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, I got the impression that no one had ever given him a correct response because his enthusiasm yes. for Jesse being a romantic is a little off the chart. Either that... Or he was one of us. And he was like, Jesse, extra credit after class, baby. (laughs) Stop linking gay people to pedophilia (laughs) or statutory rape. So anyway, this is your catalyst for the whole movie. So Jesse and Rachel, uh, Jason Lennon and Emily Burgle are in love. And Tracy, a.k.a. Liz Purr, is super jealous of them. But (laughs) you can't call her Liz Purr. (laughs) I'm just kidding. That's her name. It's Liz Purr. She's the cat's meow. And also, though, because... Oh, 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 that's right. Because Zachary Ty Bryan took a picture with uh, Mina Suvari. And yes. because Rachel works at the photo place, she has the picture. And she basically, I guess she brings it to the police. 
Well, they question her because they found the receipt in her in Mina Suvari's locker. Yes. So they come a calling, and she's like, "Yeah, here are these pictures." After Mark drove up and was like, "Hey, how about I give you twenty bucks to give over that photo?" Oh, and she <laughs> says, "I'm a dyke." Yeah. There's a there's a couple of like gay bashy kind of quotes in this, which is again welcome back to 1999. Yeah, but it's I mean it's we're not talking about Hostel here, which again is six years after this movie came out. No, it's par for the course for films of this time. Like in Jawbreaker, there's there's an entire running subplot about how uh, one of the characters after she becomes less popular is immediately designated to be a lesbian. Yeah. So anyway, so the guys immediately start hating on Rachel because they think, oh, she's trying to get Zachary Ty Bryan in trouble, accuse him of rape, accuse him of like, blah, 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 get him kicked off the football team. Which is not really true. No. Like, she gives up the evidence and then she kind of leaves it at that, which is why I thought that plot synopsis was so hilarious because that made it seem like she was actively pursuing them and really... She's trying to go about her fucking life, and she's like, hey, there's this nice guy who also kind of likes me, and I've got a recovering dog. Like, that's her deal. She's literally just trying to get through, and these assholes are like, let's make her life miserable. Let's go and prank call her house and, like, shine lights in while she's half naked. It's really bad. I mean, yeah, she's... Very much an unwilling participant in whatever scheme they're all playing. And that, uh, that makes it more tragic. It's like, you, she's not doing anything wrong. She, she mm-hmm. didn't, she, even though she should, like, want to get these fuckers in trouble, she doesn't ever have that agency. She's never like, oh, they did this. I'm going to get this guy, ruin their lives. She's actually very much a victim of the system because at one point, like, she doesn't even really want anything to do with Jesse from the start. And it's only because he kind of wears her down and gets her to agree to go on a date with him after their diner encounter that they even begin dating because she's so embroiled in the mindset that she's like a worthless loser in high school. And he's this high, you know, he's a jock who's going to be going off to college and he's got high school popularity to live up to. So it's... It's really interesting that it's these popular kids who are fixated on making her life miserable. And she's like, I'm not even thinking about you because I'm living my own shitty existence, which to me is so like, that's such a good depiction of high school. Not good, but it's a realistic depiction of high school. Like people are thinking shit is happening and other people are like, I'm just trying to get by. You have no idea what my life is actually like. I haven't seen Carrie in a couple of years. I mean, I've seen it a bunch of times, but I feel like that's how Tommy gets Carrie to the prom, too, is he kind of wears her down, which, again, maybe in the 70s, 1978, 76, mm-hmm. 76. Oh, shit. Carrie 76. Ooh, if you're listening to this, sorry, this came out 23 years after Carrie, not 20. But yeah, nevertheless, I was going to let that slide. <laughs> you shouldn't because I'm going to get people tweeting me. It's true, because Trace is a total asshole when other people <laughs> fix mix up their, their details on other podcasts. It really bothers me. Uh, if you're going to record something, do the research, uh, which totally hypocritical, I get it. Whereas I just look at the mistakes as an opportunity for people to politely engage with us on social media. Hashtag horror queers. Yeah, hashtag horror queers us and tell me that I'm right. Um, I, I didn't view it as like bad. I, I bought into their chemistry. Oh, yeah, they're they're delightful as a couple. And yeah, it was really just that initial piece where they're walking and he's like, go on a date with me. And she's like, no. And he's like, I'm not going to let you buy until you say yeah. yes. And then she's like, no. And he's like, 
I'm going to do it again. And I was like, Ugh. but after that, it's fine. Like they're like, there's a bunch of times where they're making out and she's like, no, I'm not quite comfortable. I've got a gear stick up my ass. And he's like, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about that. That Hey, so flash forward, they try to have sex in his car. Basically, the bullies are like, ooh, they love each other. We're going to set them up and like Mark offers Jesse his house or his cabin to go fuck Rachel in. Mm-hmm. And that's when Monica goes to befriend Rachel at the makeup counter when, where the makeup lady is like a pretty woman situation. She thinks like Rachel's going to like steal the makeup or something. It's really weird. She also looks like Barb from uh, True Blood. <laughs> yes. Yes, she does. Uh, now I want to go back and see if that was her, but I bet it's not. Uh, I think it is. So, anyway, they fuck in his cabin, and, uh... Shocker! It's secretly being recorded. Yes. Because that was a thing. This was pre-sex tape, people. This was a big deal. While all this is going on, Amy Irving is, like, going to the mom to sneak her out of Arkham Asylum. There's even, like, weird, like, mini heist music as they're escaping. I was like, no, no to this, no to all of this. I wrote in my notes, this goofy music cue as Sue and the mom leave Arkham, emoji of a crying face. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's, yeah, it's really stupid. And then also the way she gets her out's really dumb. Like, she, like, says hi to the receptionist and just leaves the door open, and the mom, like, charges out and no one sees her. Mm-hmm. But, again whatever i'll I'll buy into it we're not saying that the mom stuff is the best part of this film there's a lot of good parts of this film the mom stuff is not included in that yeah okay so rachel is discovered by her foster parents as having stayed out all night so she is grounded she's not allowed to go to the big game which is bad because jesse gets injured for two microseconds and she thinks that he might be dead so she sneaks back out And this sets in place the whole plan that will lead to everyone's death and destruction. It's very dramatic. No, I mean, so yeah, it's a really weird setup. The whole plan relies on her actually being at the game so that they can whisk her away. But if she hadn't, if he hadn't gotten injured for two seconds, she never would have come. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, so basically, like... All the popular kids take Rachel straight to the party. Like, oh, um, Jesse said, wait, just go go on to the party. He's going to be behind us. And she's just like, okay. Meanwhile, Tracy picks up Jesse and says she's going to take him to the party. But then she's like, oh, like, let's go home so I can change first. And like, basically, that's it. they get separated. And they're at the party. And all the popular kids basically tell Rachel, oh, he you jesse got 30 points for you he's in this sex game and also um here's the videotape of you guys having sex and they played at the party but there's also that really uncomfortable moment where so rachel is picked up and passed around by all the different guys and at this point they all have shaved heads because they won the game it's and all i could think about was these guys look Mm full-on neo-nazi It's so uncomfortable, like, because you know that they're up to nefarious goods. Like, that much at this point is completely obvious. I mean, it was obvious from the very beginning. But they're passing her around, and she has no idea. And she's laughing and smiling, and it's just, it's the perfect amount of, I think, it's a very good replication of that moment where Carrie White is on stage and you're just waiting for the pail to drop. Well, I, I, honestly, though, e- with Carrie, even before she gets announced prom queen and she's in 
at the table with Tommy sitting and she smiles. Like, it's such a subtle thing from Sissy Spacek, but like, it's, it's just like you feel, if anyone, and this is actually where I want to get into this too. If, if you've ever been bullied or you've ever felt like, you know, on the outskirts of, you know, the popular kids, that moment in Carrie when she's just sitting at the table and she just smiles because she lets her guard down and she feels accepted. It's, it's it, heartbreaking. It is truly heartbreaking, especially if you know what's coming. And I mean, most people I'm sure did because it was all over the marketing for that movie. It was on the fucking yeah. poster for Carrie. <laughs> It's kind of the same with this one. Like they it made is. no, they made no apologies. They were like, "Hey, this is going to lead to a bloodbath at this ginormous fucking house." <laughs> so here, here's my bold statement of the evening: the way that they humiliate Rachel is, I would say, more effective and more upsetting than what happens to Carrie in the original. Because even though, granted, obviously, getting announced prom queen. And getting pigs about put on you is terrible. It's a superficial thing, if that makes any sense. And I don't mean to make light of the situation because it's obviously really fucked up. But it's so much more of like a personal thing in this mm-hmm. sequel. Well, and the whole film is really playing out this long game about the sexual shaming and devaluing of women as people, right? Mm-hmm. Like they become property. They become a literal point system. So to then magnify that and blow it up and put it onto giant fucking screens where everyone at this party like she's not even up on a platform and away from people like she's she's not isolated in the same way that carrie is but she's actually surrounded and being manhandled aggressively by these people whom she thinks are accepting her and that to me is what is what really gets me is that it's the shameful thing where she can't like you can't just wash that off you no because it, like her reputation is fucked from this point on and what i actually kind of thought was interesting too is like because when they're throwing her around like once they reveal the book and they're kind of like sh- and i'm sorry i think at this point they, the, the videotape is being played and they're throwing her around and monica's like she's such a skank like how do you get that many points for you you're such a skank and i'm like mm-hmm. girls and she's done nothing to her nothing. nothing at all like she literally has not even interacted with monica before monica began setting this plan in motion well, that's the thing if it had been tracy saying that i would get it not that it's justified but i would get it because tracy thinks that she has betrayed like, done something against her by you know sleeping with jesse or like stealing mm-hmm. jesse from her with monica it doesn't make any sense no and that's actually what makes it more powerful is mm-hmm. that they don't even have a connection and monica has all this vitriol and hatred for her and it's literally just because she thinks that she's lower class that she's not worth as much and she thinks that she deserves it because she's been sexually active like that to me this is 1999 we're still seeing cases of women being blamed for their own rapes and their own sexual assaults we're seeing people getting arrested for sending you know a a nude picture to a boy and then getting expelled from school like this movie forecast so much and then it got shit on by critics and audiences for it it did and it's also saying i mean obviously all the guys in this movie besides for jesse like are shit heels just to use your term but it's also (laughs) it's also saying like it's not just the men it is the women too yes because women slut shame each other and that's the that's a fucking problem Mm -hmm. and i'm glad that we're not there yet obviously but like we are 
there is a transition happening with more sex positivity, especially in the entertainment industry. I mean, again, like, you know, with Cam from last year, even like a tiny step. Uh, yes. But, but, but yeah, it's a plug step. for Cam. If people haven't seen Cam, A, what the fuck are you doing and go watch it? But B, yes, Cam is an example of how to do this right. And if you don't know what sex positivity is, it doesn't mean like, um, it's not like a disease. <laughs> it's, <laughs> and it's also not like, yay, sex. It's like, being okay with sex yes viewing sex in a positive like healthy light it's not shameful it's not bad it's it's mm-hmm. it's something that just is a part of being a human being or yeah. even a, a, an existence on this planet because that's what it fucking is so i actually wanted to ask you this because i mean i i don't think we ever discussed this and maybe you don't have an answer but you know movies like this really hit home for me uh, i didn't have like a super like bullied like bad childhood or adolescence um i was bullied but i was never like in fights i was never like in i was never beat up or anything like that but i i had many moments of humiliation and is there do you have any like specific instance where it's like because I, I guess like when i see a movie like this you know people are like well it really sucks what happened to her she was bullied but that doesn't give her the right to kill somebody well which like yeah duh but at the same time i mean yeah for the purposes of entertainment in a movie Sure. But so do you have an instance in your life that is, I want to say like your quote unquote carry moment, like a moment of bullying or humiliation that where it's like, ooh, like if I had powers, that would have been the moment that like would have like fucking like I would have killed everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and I'm not endorsing or condoning murder, by the way. It's just totally hypothetical situation. No. Yeah. Um, Interestingly enough, my experiences do mirror the experiences from this film. So my quote unquote bullying experiences were psychological. So I like I never got locked in lockers. I never got beaten up. Mm -hmm. I never, you know, I, I deliberately took myself out of certain situations. Like I tried not to spend time in locker rooms in high school and junior high because I didn't feel safe. Yeah. And I was afraid of being exposed and bullied in those scenarios. But um, I had a best friend and we had been best friends since grade one, I think. And the way that the school system is set up. uh, So I grew up in Alberta. And at the time, it was junior high was from grade seven to nine. And then you would graduate and go to high school for three years from grade 10 to 12. Mm -hmm. And in grade nine, I was still friends with this guy, and he had developed other friends that were then part of our joined friend group, but I didn't necessarily like these people all that much. Like, it was very much a, I was friends with him, and he was friends with these other people, so we were all friends. And one person, one of his friends in particular didn't like me. And I think it's because he was jealous and threatened by my friendship with this guy whose name is John. And yes, in hindsight, I look back on it. I probably had a very long standing crush on my friend John. I was not ready to accept it. But at one point in grade nine, this other guy and all of the rest of my friends I I mean, I found out about it after the fact. I never actually was privy to the conversation because, of course, it's boys. They never talk. They ran away at lunch hour every day. Starting one random day, you know, the lunch bell rang. I went to go and sit down in the cafeteria with them. 
And they literally got up and walked away and disappeared for the rest of the lunch hour without saying a single word to me. Did this every day for two weeks until I just realized, okay, these people are no longer my friends. And it was just, it was like a fucking knife because I knew that the reason that they were doing it is because they knew that I was different and they didn't like it and they wanted to punish me. And they didn't even have the fucking balls to say anything. But this was like at the end of my career at this particular school. So I had all of a sudden no friends going into the rest of this year. And I felt completely isolated. At this point, I'm obviously already starting to question my own sexuality. Right. But I had to make like all these new friends. I felt completely isolated, completely alone. I was starting to have like really bad acne problems as well. So I basically hated myself, hated my life. And it ended up leading to all kinds of like depression, suicidal thoughts that carried on throughout my entire high school career. So John and you guys, if you're listening, you can go fuck yourselves because you were also shit heels. And that's the thing too. I mean, like, and it's not like, that's not a singular incident. I'm sure like tons of people, especially people listening to us right now, have had experiences like that. And, you know, for anyone that's never experienced something like that, they might be like, oh, it's not that bad. Like, kids will be kids, blah, 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 blah. But things like that, like, they take a psychological toll on you. And, and when you're a child or an adolescent or a teenager and, you know, your brain is still developing, it shapes who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I mean, yeah, it sucks. Especially my self-worth. That was the thing. Like, I didn't know what I had done wrong it's not like we had a fight it's not like i made a move and it went bad or something like that it was just like they knew that i was different they picked up on it they didn't like it you know and it's interesting because i look back and so john had an older sister and i remember one time we were hanging out at his house and she just looked at me and she was like you're gay like do you know that you're going to grow up and you're going to be gay and i was like i don't even know what that is Mm because it was like grade one or two And after all of this stuff happened, all I could think about was, so did I just lose all of my friends because I'm this thing that people say I am that I don't even know what that means? Yeah. It sucked. The earliest time I remember being called a faggot was when I think fifth grade. And I didn't even know what it was at the time. I actually thought that it meant maggot because it rhymed. And so I thought they were the same thing. So I didn't think it was a big deal. Um, but then I called my friend a faggot because I thought that's what I thought I was calling him a maggot. And my mom was like, wait, <laughs> and she told me what it was. <laughs> oh, God. Um, but I, I have a lot of experiences like with just like, yeah, like loss of self-worth. But and for some reason, the one that sticks out to me the most, and it's not even the worst of the things that's happened to me, was I remember being in sixth grade and going to the school dance. And like the next Monday, uh, someone had spread a rumor that I was dancing with a guy at the dance. And granted... Who this guy would have been, even if I was dancing with a guy, I don't even know who. <laughs> who would it have been? Uh, but isn't there isn't there always only one of us in any of these in any of these schools? I know, and, but yeah. So it was like the talk of the week that week at school it was like, oh, like Trace the the faggot was dancing with a guy at the dance, and I didn't. Like I was staring at the girl with the big boobs. Uh, her name was uh, Haley, and because <laughs> we know you love big boobs, and yeah, because I had a crush on her. Because at the time, I didn't know that I was gay. Apparently, everyone else did though. So I mean, it, it's not even like a big deal. But like, I remember just being made fun of that whole next week for for making out with a uh, for, sorry for um dancing with a guy. Yeah, 
for something that didn't even happen. Right. But it was that easy. And I think that's also hard when, if you don't know you're gay yet or you haven't thought about it seriously, mm-hmm. when people are telling you that, it makes it even more difficult. Because that's when you actively try, you're like, no, I'm not. Don't yeah. tell me what I am. Like, I don't even know what that means. Well, and not that it's any less difficult if you do know you're gay. Obviously, like, I'm not trying to like belittle anyone else's experience. But like, I yeah, I, I just... I was so confused because I was like, I'm not. And it was so frustrating. And nothing you can say or do is going to change what they're saying. Oh, yeah. And if I, if I had some Carrie or Rachel powers, I would have killed some people. I mean, I didn't, you know, but. <laughs> so before we move on to like the murders, I actually. <laughs> <laughs> I did. So, <laughs> and, and, and you can tell me if this is a bad idea or not. But listeners, um, I actually kind of wanted to know what your bullying experiences were in high school or college or elementary school or middle school whatever it was like what what's a and you don't have to give me your worst one or uh, give us your worst one you don't have to give us a, but what's one that maybe sticks out in your mind that is you know maybe stuck with you for your whole life because yeah. i know that all of us every single queer person every single person that's in any minority group and also people that are in majority groups i mean like i'm sure there are straight white men who have had moments of bullying i mean i know that for a fact yeah it's not exclusive to queer people it's not exclusive to women people are typically shit to people yeah but i i like the idea i think it could be if you feel comfortable, yeah, absolutely. You don't obviously. Inf- yeah, <laughs> if you're listening and you don't want to say it, like don't, don't, don't do it. It's fine. Like this isn't like a peer pressure thing. Yeah, but it it could be good to maybe get it off your chest. Yeah, and like also like you know we have a community of people that listen to this podcast and you know that we try to interact with and engage with, and so you know it could be a good way to just like kind of like not feel alone and if you are listening to this and you know i know obviously not everyone that listens to this engages with this but if you are listening to this and you feel alone reach out you know Dear god reach out yes. yeah th- there are people who are just like you and even if you're in the middle of bumfuck nowhere kansas there are people yes and i'm gonna say maybe in this case just because twitter's so public and it's so it focuses on brevity maybe people send us an email at horrorqueers at gmail.com yeah, I mean, 100%. I mean, if you want to tweet it, you're more than welcome to. If you want to yeah. email us, um, you can also reach out to us individually on whatever social media platform you like. I mean, you know. How about this? If people are comfortable with it, if you send us something, let us know. And we could maybe do like a special, like a one-off kind of, we could read them. Yeah, it'll be a work in progress. We'll think about it. But, you know. Tell us your stories. We want to hear them. And if you're comfortable sharing it with the world, then share it however you want. But you're not alone. So. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so Rachel kills all these people. <laughs> she <laughs> certainly does. Yes. I love the way these people die. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So party's in full swing. She's getting passed around. The video comes out. The book comes out. And her powers kick in. And the doors go into lockdown mode. And the tattoo grows. Which I love. I love this. I know that it's a very obvious visual metaphor or like it's symbolic of her her growing rage. Mm-hmm. But I think as a visual piece, it's really great. I agree. And even it's obviously CGI, but it doesn't look that bad. 
compared Ooh. to other. I mean, if anyone's seen Deep Rising, with, which oh, is some God. shitty ass CGI, which is a great movie, but really bad CGI. Uh, mm-hmm. This this looks like miraculous by those standards. Yes, there is one piece of bad CGI, but it's coming up at the end. Uh, I'm going to guess what you're saying. Is it the fire poker that's flying through the air? No, it's oh, like the it's very the, it's final the very, scene. Oh, it, it's, the, <laughs> it's the shatter. So I, I, yeah. have, I have three moments of like, ooh, that looks like shit. It's the fire poker that's flying through the air that goes to kill uh, Amy Irving. It's okay. the CDs flying through the air that cut through that girl, which, by the way, great 90s death. <laughs> yeah, it's it's that and Hellraiser 3, Hell yes! on Earth, baby. <laughs> CD deaths, they were a thing in the late 90s. Uh, it's so good. I wish more people did it. I mean, it's ridiculous because I can't even imagine the amount of force that it would take to impale someone with a CD. <laughs> well, I mean, it's psychic powers. I mean, that's all it takes. Uh, so, yeah. And then, yeah. And then, yeah, the shattering at the end, which, oh. I'll get to it in a minute because there's an alternate ending. I don't know if you watched it, but there is. Oh, no, I didn't. Okay. Uh Okay. So what do we have? So she, okay. So she, she locks all the doors and Mm -hmm. a couple people escape, but for the most part, everybody's trapped in this giant open Mm -hmm. area. Like this house is magnificent. It is house porn to the nth degree. It's great. I mean, and it, in again, tiny bit of trivia, it's built in an underground like garage basically. And it's, all the fire is real. Like, they literally lit this place up. It's great. So, Practical yeah. effects. Yes, yes, yes. The bald guy who's Monica's boyfriend runs to the door and she fire pokers him through the head, which, s- surprise, Amy Irving, Sue Snell is on the other side of that door. So they both get a fire poker through the head. And even though I hate her dying, it is a really cool effect when they open the door <laughs> and they're both, like, pinned to the door on each side. Yeah, and and the door opens multiple times, so you continue to see their bodies, and they look like door knockers. Yes. So gross. There's also a girl that, just a random extra, running around on fire going, put me out, put me out! And I'm like, stop, drop, and roll! Like, (laughs) we learned this in element in kindergarten, I feel like. I don't understand why people don't just stop, drop, and roll, but she's running around burning up. Yeah, I... Those are the kinds of things where I always wish that the immolation was tied to some kind of gas as opposed to just a generic fire. Because with a regular fire, yeah, stop, drop, and roll. But if it's like you've been lit on fire with kerosene, yeah, stop, drop, and roll will not stop that. So yeah, I'm just always kind of like, maybe just give it that extra little added bead of realism. But <laughs> yeah, so she, she blows out all the glass from the doors. Mm-hmm. And apparently Emily Berg suffered some not so minor uh, <laughs> cuts from that. So they could never shoot her from the back again as a result of that. Yes, because she had cuts all over it. And I think they had to do that shot of the glass bursting behind her like three times. And three I watched, times. I, again, I watched this movie twice because I watched the commentary. And both times when that glass shattered behind her, I was like, ooh, I see it. Yeah, it looks painful. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, girl, no, like make the glass go around you with your telekinetic power. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, don't take the brunt of it. But a bunch of people die from that, yeah. And then we've got the fireplace poker through the head. So, and, like, pe- people get glass in their throats, and, like, it's, like, spraying everywhere. And, yeah, th- then you have the CD death. Apparently the girl who gets the, c- who gets the CDs was actually meant to be a friend of Monica's. Like, she was meant to be part of the group, which is why she gets her own kind of big death thing. But then they either didn't shoot it or her scenes were cut. Well, she's in the car with Monica and Rachel as they head to the party. 
uh, where, where Monica's like, give me your dress, give me my dress. <laughs> yes, yes. And that's when the song Backstabbing Liar is playing. So yeah, then the CD Death Girl gets her hers. And then apparently there's only three people left alive in this party. <laughs> well, she killed, I think she killed nearly everybody with either the fire or the shattering glass. Cause yeah, at this point, we're now down to Mark, who is the big wig shit heel. Mm-hmm. We've got Eric, who is the guy that, who, who had sex with Mina Suvari's Lisa. And then Monica. So th- this the part was the part to me where I was like, it is so weird that Monica is here and yeah. not Tracy. But it, it absolutely yes, we've is. talked about that. So it basically, yeah, they all get out of the pool and Mon- fucking Rachel. So Monica is about to pull the trigger on a spear gun because there's a spear gun in this movie. And Rachel makes her glasses burst and just blind her. And she freaks out and spear guns Eric's dick into the pool. And it is awesome. Oh, my God. It's so glorious. <laughs> Because honestly, how often do you ever see men get their dicks cut off unless it's a rape revenge film? Which I guess this kind of is in a way. It kind of is. I mean, it's not, I mean, again, whether it's, it's not rape, but you know, it's definitely revenge. But I, I hate that Monica dies from that damn glasses, those damn glasses shattering her face. It would cut her eyes out, sure, but it would not kill her. I always got the impression that the glass was like forced back into her brain. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, fine. We'll go with that. She, there you go. I mean, it was the only thing I could rationalize because I was also like, isn't it just that she's blind? Why is she dead? Yeah. Well, she's like having a seizure too. I mean, it can't be pleasant. <laughs> it's just Rachel and Mark and she gets distracted by her mom's noise and Mark shoots her uh, with a flare gun. Yeah. It's the mom is useless. In the this mom movie. is the worst. Sidebar. S- the mom's a great actress in Rectify. Well, I've never seen that, but I'm sure she's great. And so, yeah. So she. Falls in the pool. Mark's like, "Ooh, I'm a winner. Yay. And then she drags him in and drowns him. Well, she doesn't drown him. She hits him with the pool cover and then he drowns. Yes, because the pool cover like traps him underwater. And it's pretty Which cool. I kind of love because it's such a classic thing. Like if you've got a pool, there's probably going to be some kind of pool cover element to it. Like remember when we did Thelma and there was that scene where... Thelma gets trapped under the water and she can't break the surface. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Like, when I see a pool, I'm like, okay, people are going into that pool and they're either going to boil, like, in Freddy's Revenge, Mm -hmm. or they're going to drown in some way. Yeah. So... People can never just swim in a fucking pool. (laughs) He drowns. Some CGI blood comes out of his mouth and it's really bad looking, but whatever. And she uses the spear gun to cut herself to safety. To which I'm like, she's so industrious. Yes, I love it. She's reclaiming the phallic symbol that was going to murder her and using it to save her own life. Mm-hmm. It's already taken one dick and then it saves the vagine. So then finally, Jesse shows up with Tracy and Tracy immediately dies. Oh <laughs> my God, it's so frustrating. They like, they, okay, so they open up the poker, the poker place skewered people mm-hmm. on the doorknobs and then they they walk in see rachel and rachel's just like bam and tracy's dead i mean it's and that 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 death is the one thing cat shay said i really wish i would have done this differently oh my god me too cat shay and it <laughs> but it was down to they didn't have enough time they did not yeah. have enough time and the, the, the climax was filmed very quickly so all things considered it turned out well oh my god that like Okay, so we're underselling it because we're making it sound like it's a rush job and yeah. people are just dead. But, like, it's a banger. This yeah. climax is great. It is. I mean, it, it 
it's not as because it's not shot as inventively as De Palma shot his with all the split screen and all the fun like little effects and stuff. Which I'm kind of thankful for because if Tache hadn't tried to replicate all of that, it would have been bad. Yeah, like she would have gotten dragged for it. But like you give this '90s horror slasher aesthetic to this movie, which is what this is, and like imagine that to to, to carry, and that mm-hmm. is what this ending is. And honestly, it works very really well. well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then she and Jesse have her heart to heart and she's like, I'm going to murder you because you're just as bad as the rest of them. And then he conveniently is revealed to have mumbled in his sleep. I love you. He loves her. (laughs) Yeah. To which I was like, whoa, good thing you talk in your sleep, boy. (laughs) I don't think he was actually asleep. I think he was like watching her. Like it was a video of him like awake after she had fallen asleep in his arms. I don't know. Aren't her? Aren't his eyes closed? You can talk with your eyes closed, Joe. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Wait, can you also walk and chew gum? Oh my god! So, <laughs> so yeah. So she's like, "Oh, I love him too." But then, oops! But it's too late. She's already set in plan her. No, set in motion her plan. Right, because she unscrews all the screws that loose a piece of ceiling on him. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, "No!" And she pushes him out of the way, and she dies instead. But I will say that I like her enthusiasm because she full on like picks him up and like hurdles him. Yeah. Like I'm like, "Wow, girl's got some good upper body strength." Oh, we did. Okay, there is one really good moment of acting from Emily Burgle in this scene, and it's when the mom abandons her, and she's like, "Mom, I have no one else. I'm all alone." And she's crying. It's, I mean, I, my heart broke for her in that moment. So sorry, that was a but really, really good moment for Emily Burgle. And she, she looks fierce in the yeah. scenes where she's like walking around and just murdering people mercilessly. Mm-hmm. Like she is so believably threatening, like, which is great because a lot of this movie is actually her being quite soft. Yes. Like her, you know, she's got this head of just like gorgeous, luscious curls. And half the time you're just like, oh, she looks really sweet. Except when she calls Amy Irving a crazy bitch when she takes her to that damn, (laughs) the remains of the school. (laughs) Yeah, she, she looks like she could go off there a little bit. But yeah, so the ceiling falls on her and Mm -hmm. she dies. Yeah, she's like, you should leave. And he's like, no. And she's like, no, but really get the fuck out. And he's like, no. And then she's like, fine, telekinetic into the pool. (laughs) Yeah, basically. And the house burns down, she's dead, and cut to a year later. And what's the name of the university? King's University, just (gasps) like Stephen King. Nudge, nudge to the wink, wink. And then Jesse has the dog, and he's sad, and Rachel walks in. Mm-hmm. She climbs in through the window, not on like screen. Yeah, and then they kiss, and then she. It's really kind of dumb, actually. I don't like this stinger of an ending, but she do sc- not like it at all. She screams and she shatters like glass, and mm-hmm. that's it. I mean, that, that cut to credits. Like that's the end of the movie. Well, no, and then you get this this shot of it's kind of artistic. It's him looking in the mirror, and his image is reflected back to him about a million times, just looking super. It's a weird mixture of forlorn and sad, but also really fucking exhausted looking. Like, he's been having this nightmare for a year. Which I like that, but I don't need a really bad attempt at a jump scare in the same vein as Carrie. Like, that's the only reason the scene is here, is because it's like, hey, we're evoking the original ending of Carrie. And that's, uh, honestly, that's one thing, because Kat Shea, who again, seems like a very nice woman. 
is she's very into the craft and the art of this movie, but like she doesn't deny, but doesn't acknowledge any of the similarities her movie has to De Palma's Carrie. And it's like, girl, <laughs> there are some things that you need to be like, yeah, I was trying to like copy Carrie. Yeah. <laughs> like, just because do I it. got hired to make a fucking sequel. It's in the title. <laughs> yeah. So. Okay. Al- so tell me about the alternative ending. It is the exact same thing, except instead of, turning into glass <gasps> she turns into hearts no a giant <gasps> she turns sna- into dogs no yeah. <laughs> shut up <laughs> a giant snake shoots out of her mouth and strangles jesse okay and the effect it's on the blu-ray it's a before and after it, was, it says before and after effect shot so you have like the rough cut and then like the final cut and they look exactly the same oh, really bad dear. cgi <laughs> Well, snakes are hard to do with CGI at the best of times, and I can't ar- I can't imagine that she had a good budget to do this. It was it was really bad. I mean, like it's because it, it jumps out of her mouth and into his mouth, but while it's in his mouth, like it like wraps around him and strangles him. Sounds hot. I think I've had a couple dreams like that myself. <laughs> I'm a little jealous, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Except it, I think it had both of the London twins in it. Oh my god. Uh... So, Call back yeah. to Dead Ringers. Bam, bam, yeah. bam. <laughs> anyway, so that's the Rage Carry 2. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Trace, how can people get a hold of you on the social medias? They can get a hold of me by reaching out on either Twitter or Instagram, because apparently people find my Instagram because of the same thing, at Trace Thurman. Mm-hmm. There's a lots of quality dog and photo pictures on that there Instagram. Yes, there are. <laughs> and how can people reach you? I'm at B stole my remote. That's the letter B. And if you're tweeting about the podcast or posting on Instagram, please be sure to use the hashtag horrorqueers in your tweets so we can find you. And you can also email us at horrorqueers at gmail.com. But if you want more horrorqueers, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash horrorqueers, where you can listen to episodes on such recent hits as Happy Death Day to You and Glass, and also our one of our, we'll say, repertory <laughs> March episodes on the 2009 remake of Last House on the Left, which is celebrating its 10-year anniversary. Mm-hmm. Exciting for that one, because it was voted on by the Patreon members. So, you know, if you join the Patreon group, then you get the opportunity to force Trace and I to do things at your behest. Yes. And on that note, thank you for all the patrons who already give us money because we love you. And Mm -hmm. if you aren't able to give us money, but you still love us, please go to iTunes and leave us a rating. Or if you have even more time, leave us a review because it actually helps us show up in search results. And we really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we even show up in the new and notable for like a hot second. 12 hours. We made it for 12 (laughs) hours. This Sorry. (laughs) We made it for 12 hours. It's great. Um, I'm not not bitter at all. No. Um, And of course, we'd like to thank Bloody Disgusting for sponsoring us and allowing us to promote our podcasts. Uh, Without them, this wouldn't be possible. So please keep reading Bloody Disgusting. And you can also find our articles on there once a month. Joe, what are we covering next week? So we are sticking with almost the same theme, minus the female director, but we are sticking in slasher territory. We're advancing a year. And we are going to be talking about 2000's Cherry Falls with Brittany Murphy and Jay Moore and my hot daddy, Michael Bean. Yeah. Uh, and there is 100% a queer element in that movie, if you've never seen it. And we're not just, <laughs> we're not just talking about our special guest star either. Although he does add a certain gay element to so it. So there's well. lots of queerness, lots of gayness in next week's episode. 
<laughs> so yeah, that is uh I guess we can go ahead and cross out the rage carry too. Yeah, and cross out horror queers. Cross out horror queers. Oh.